Reading Room, a literary podcast devoted to the works of Appendix A. Here we open the library doors of the Sanctum Socorro to you. Welcome to the Sanctum Secorum Reading Room. Whether you are new to the literary world of Appendix A, a diehard fan of the genre, or even just tuning in to see how certain titles tie into a particular set of role-playing games, etc., we invite you to join us as we dive into the history and influence of Appendix N. We'd like to open our library to you and inspire readers to explore these new worlds with us. Tonight, we are continuing our exploration of the women of Appendix N with Lee Brackett's novel, The Sea Kings of Mars, also known as The Sword of Rhiannon. Take it away, Bob. Do your thing. Sure. So it was originally released in 1949 through Thrilling Wonder Tales as The Sea King of Mars, and it was described as Rhiannon seeks release from his age-long prison in the mind of a man from Earth, plunging Matt Carsey into the midst of a romantic, deadly past. That didn't really tell us a whole lot about the book, though, did it? But it was a blurb. It was a blurb in pulp. So it tells me Rhiannon's not a female. That is, which true. is a nice, refreshing change. So it was then released uh, in paperback as an ace double, number D thirty-six. And when it was given its own release, Greed pulls the archaeologist Matt Carse into the forgotten tomb of the Martian god Rhiannon and plunges the unlikely hero into the Red Planet's fantastic past when vast oceans covered the land and legendary sea kings ruled from terraced palaces of decadence and delight. So that's a nice image, still doesn't tell us a whole lot about the story. Okay, that that's straight. It sets a scene. It sets a scene. Um, alternately, there's the one line from the back of my book, my book, that I wrote to read to Bob before he dug into his reading it himself. Matt Carse entered the ancient lost tomb as an itinerant explorer. He emerged a million years before as a god. Bob's well, response. I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. I mean, this, yeah. This this is this is Lee Brackett. Now, now for those unfamiliar, uh born Lee Douglas Brackett, December 7th, 1915 to March 18th, 1978. Lee Brackett was the queen of space opera. And it, it really shows here. She yeah. contributed to the second issue of STFET which is scientification at right stf was a was a different term they oh. used for science fiction that did not catch on stf uh, did did, oh, did, did yeah. not catch on and um, ette is the suffix to say that it's a feminine work or because something. it was it was an all women science fiction scene uh, it, went, cool it went it went two issues <laughs> well no, it, it was it was important at the time um sadly it went two issues but uh because most of the women were writing under male pseudonyms no just because they were all already involved in a lot of other fan groups uh, just just like lee brackett was i mean that's where she met her husband and everything it was these these massive science fiction fantasy groups out in the la area Right. I, I was reading about that. Um, the friend and advisor when she was getting started, Henry Kuttner, ended up being C.L. Moore's husband, as a side note. Uh, but Kuttner introduced Brackett to the other sci-fi writers in California, the you know, Heinlein, Jack Williamson, uh, Ray Bradbury, who I know you have some tidbits on. Well, it's, it's funny because she and, went on to mentor Ray Bradbury. Yeah, yeah. And he was the uh, best man at, the, at her wedding. <laughs> but so many of these were also pulled in from what was called the Lovecraft circle, from those that were corresponding with and about 
Lovecraft uh, even after he passed. Uh, I really dig the fact that uh, she started writing sci-fi in 1939. And then just five years later, she was writing for moving pictures. Well, and it's, it, it's funny. So uh, director Howard Hawks was so impressed with one of her novels that he had his secretary call this guy Brackett to, uh, to help William Faulkner write the script for the big sleep. I just like this guy Brackett, call that guy Brackett, that, that Lee guy. And, and I'm sure that was not the the first, last, or only time there was that bit of confusion. But then she went on to write screenplays here for The Big Sleep, Rio Bravo, El Dorado, The Long Goodbye. She even wrote the original draft for The Empire Strikes Back. Right. And if I recall, she was given a posthumous uh, thank you in the credits. Yes. So she handed it. She handed in her first draft two months before she died. And it was it was still a rough draft, so she passed away. It was completely reworked. All of her story beats are still in the movie, but it is certainly still a, it, it's a different script. But she was given a posthumous credit. Um, gotcha. Uh, I I like the fact that the title of her first novel was "No Good from a Corpse," and I'm. Just, <laughs> why are we not reading that one? It it doesn't really get any more DCC than that. Does it, Mr. Newton? <laughs> well, except I, if I recall correctly, that was a uh, that was a pulp detective story as opposed to science fiction or mystery. Um, but you know, if you want to go yeah, detectives, because right? that that's what actually got them interested in having her as a screenwriter for The Big Sleep was yep. her pulp mystery there. And she was she was a big favorite amongst Hollywood. I mean, John Carpenter named the character the, the character Sheriff Lee Brackett in Halloween for Lee Brackett. <laughs> he, he didn't even spell it differently. It is the same character. That, that's kind of funny. And um, and interestingly as as a woman writer of the period who certainly already had to deal with kind of you know the issues that came along, you know, the baggage that came along with that. She had a recurring character in some of her other Mars stories, Eric John Stark, who was who was from Mercury. And so he had black skin and black hair, which in the stories led to him being being treated with prejudice. But he was commonly illustrated as pasty white and blonde because that's what people did. So there you go. Oh boy. Um yeah, I mean, just talking about the author herself, I have to respect the fact that she had no f- weak female characters. No. And, I mean, e- even even in another piece or two that we've read in the past, I like this trend. I would like to continue this trend. <laughs> uh, it's worth noting that she was... Uh, she openly admitted to being influenced by Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, Martian novels, which really comes through. It, yeah, it shows. And she took this dying world of silent cities and her own obsession with Celtic mythology to blend freshness and nostalgia into her settings. And there, there's a quote that is used actually within this book that I think sums up her writing style in a nutshell. The past is the present that exists at a distance. Can't really disagree with that. Um, and of it, course, it's a little too deep to disagree with, right? <laughs> and the, the entire story is, is set on Lee Brackett's version of Mars. And if you're a fan of Lee Brackett, you're familiar with her Mars because while all of her Mars stories don't directly connect. Her vision of Mars mostly does. And having read a lot of her stuff, it's it's familiar and it's comfortable to go back to, but it doesn't get it doesn't have the feeling of being retreaded, which is really the problem with Burroughs' John Carter stories, is by book five. Book five is essentially book one. <laughs> With with new character names. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and so her stuff always feels very fresh. And, exactly. and she describes things. I just want to point out how exciting it is to have an author that describes things. 
to an extent. And Enough. I think, well, I, I think we'll get into that as we uh, dive into the book itself and away from the author a little bit. Um, first off, I wanted to mention that we actually have some viewers watching the stream live on Twitch tonight that have read the book. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Many commendations to you all. Uh, it, it's fun to talk about a book with other people. I know it's always more fun to do so in person, but you guys are here in the chat with us. So chat at us and we'll talk or blab back at you. Promise. Um, I just have to say, first off, my favorite, favorite thing about this book is that the titular Rhiannon is not a female, not a witch, and it has nothing to do with Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> I am relieved to the nth degree on this one. You know, I think if people throw in enough bits, Jen might tell us what how, what she really feels about Fleetwood Mac. I don't know. Uh, I have nothing against Stevie Beaks <laughs> or Fleetwood Mac. I'm just so... Uh, it, it's really... It's like Morgan Llewellyn overdone on the Rhiannon thing. Uh, interestingly enough, there's a, a story that was published uh, just before for this one, I think one of her earlier stories in 1942 was actually called The Sorcerer of Rhiannon. Same author, same spelling, but the name is used as that of a place, as a location yeah, versus no, a character. No real connection, exactly. Uh, it just, hey, well, it's and if, funny what you could turn up when you hit Google the right way. Well, and if you think about it, right, this was originally The Sea Kings of Mars. So obviously, you know, kind of a throwaway title that she used originally. She liked the name. She used the name in the story. Because, right? I mean, the, the the story appears essentially unedited in in the pulp to to the paperback publication. It's it's the same. I I went and looked because there is there is a disagreement on whether or not it is a reprint or an expansion. And I'm the guy to tell you. It's a reprint. I checked. This one? This one? Well, this is from a reprint? The, well, from, well, the entire paperback publication is a reprint of how it originally appeared in okay. Thrilling Wonder Tales in 1949. Well, that would make sense because you've got the, the chapters. Oh, well, are... but a lot of a lot of time. Well, no, it wasn't serialized in Thrilling Wonder Tales. It appeared in one issue. Oh, in in its entirety. In its That's entirety. That's rare for something this long. Um, not wow. for Thrilling Wonder Tales. Thrilling Wonder Tales would run would run a short novel each issue. Oh, oh see, I'm thinking of the others, like fantasy and science fiction. Right. That, that would serialize Analog things. Or, yeah. And okay. so it is, and normally things would appear in the pulps. And then if they were going to be reprinted, the author would go back, maybe kind of clean them up or make some changes. Not the case. The story hit the page and it was done. And it's fantastic. It's it is probably uh, I'm already a Lee Brackett fan and have been for quite some time, and I think this is probably my favorite piece to date. I I I don't think it needed any polishing. No, no. Uh, I mean, there were. Okay, we're diving right into it, right? Uh, well, that's not <laughs> that is that is why we're here tonight. Well, I was wondering if we wanted to put up a, a poll for our listeners or viewers. Uh, uh, we we have oh that, that that's right. The questions aren't polls. Got it. No, they are not. <laughs> okay, so we have we have questions and then we have a poll at the end. Right. Okay. Look at Jenny the end of this. Reading our show notes aloud. It's great. Now you know how we structure our show, folks. No, I I had uh, uh, moving I had on. A thing, yeah. <laughs> uh, so for those of you viewing, listening, uh, who was your favorite character of the bunch? Well, let's let's start before you start asking questions. Let's talk about the actual book for a second here, right? I mean, we we've talked about the author. Let's talk. I got sidetracked because the questions are. Up at the top, I suppose I should answer that first, huh? It's a so, late night, guys. <laughs> Jen has been very, very busy getting ready for Gary Khan. You'll have to little, pardon that she's bit. firing on one and a half cylinders. <laughs> but that half cylinder was enough to remind me that the other Lee Brackett book that we reviewed 
with Sanctum Secorum was episode 16. And it was actually my first exposure to Bracket. And I declared it one of my favorites that we'd read for the series, for the show in its entirety. Lee Bracket stuff's great. We weren't Um, bludgeoned with giant descriptors or this huge cast of characters who were supposed to keep straight. And it was just a really refreshing change from some of the other Appendix N pieces that we'd been over. Yeah. So, so this book, this book starts in kind of the, the gritty underbelly of Mars in, it, you know, it's, it's in like the, the Casablanca or the most Isley, you know, it is the, the seedy area of, of Mars and our, our character, our, our main character, Matt Carse or Carse is, Carse, yeah. Is you know he is a member. He's been accepted into the local thieves guild. They talk about that. He's a former archaeologist, and he's being followed through the marketplace. And it sets up this this great feeling in this world that has has passed by. Right? It is it is uh, the Mar. It is Mars like Stephen King's World of the Dark Tower is. It is is passed by. It is at its end. Everything is dried out. Everything is gone. And then he is elsewhere. He's gone from the white sands of this dying planet to somewhere lush. Exactly. Millions of years into the past. Yeah. The, I, I have like a page of notes just on the imagery alone. I, the the imagery is is fantastic, and and he is he's thrown into the past, and immediately nothing goes right for him. You know, they, in in at the beginning of the story, it's hey, I've got this deal for you. There's this ancient tomb. I know the location. We'll be rich. He goes there. He gets the things. He's thrown into the past. Someone robs him of the things. He's then captured and enslaved. Really, um, he could have stayed home. He could have stayed home and read a book by Leigh Brackett, and he would have had a much better evening, I think. Um, so we we could talk about home for a minute. You've got Low Canal Town, which you referred to, mm-hmm. which is also described as being outside the law. It, it's, you know, just a little bit seedier than the rest. It's, it's Martian Lankmar. It's also where the ocean trenches used to be. And that yes. just right there... I'm, you have my interest. We open with an archaeologist holding a photon gun. Uh, okay, I, I'm in. It's not described, you know, you, you don't get the, the entire description of how he's there and why, at least not right off the bat. It just throws you directly into the action. Um, he's being chased by somebody who's part of the aristocracy of thieves. And yeah, I, then there's the tomb. (laughs) Then there's, and, and so, and all of the sudden he finds himself someplace else. And as he is struggling to come to terms with this, everyone that sees him immediately confuses him for something else and vilifies him. And that does not go well for him. And I find it really interesting considering a point that you brought up earlier, Bob. He is pale with blonde hair, and he is the villain. Yes. That's really intriguing and funny. And, uh, and, and so he is, he is captured. He ends up on a slave galley. And that's, that's where things kind of go. You know, we've had this opening, right? We had this very science fiction opening where we're in Mars. He's got a photon gun. There's this weird, weird time space travel. And now we've jumped straight into like Robert E. Howard sword and sorcery fantasy where he's on the slave galley. He's wheel, he's wielding the, the legendary blade. And, you know, there's the evil serpent men, which is boys. Is that a, is that a sword and sorcery trope? (laughs) It's, it's just, this book is a perfect example for people that are, are gamers that don't like science fiction in their fantasy or, or, 
or things of that nature. Um, <laughs> this is a perfect example of how the two things can be blended so well and were in, in the period, right? There really wasn't a whole lot of distinction between, between the stories and the poems. And, and here this is yeah, captured and then he's calling upon Rhiannon as he's going into battle to try and escape. There's so much powerful imagery and it's it just it flows so nicely. It's not so much him calling upon Rhiannon, but digging into what he feels surfacing within himself. Well, but the first time, a, but the, the first time it's not even that. The first time he has no idea why he's calling out Rhiannon's name. The second time is he goes into battle against against the serpent. He has no idea why he is calling out Rhiannon's name. And then after that, words start flowing that seem to be coming from elsewhere. That's that's where we have that moment. It's like he's called down that God. Let's talk about those words. His use of language when being possessed by Rhiannon. Uh, Okay, this part's waking me up. Uh, It's archaic, but it's not unapproachable. An example would be, bring you the sword me. And it, it's almost as if it's being translated from one language language into another. And the spirit possessing him is trying to struggle to put the words into the, the speech that Karst knows. And that, that was a little bit more anthropological than archaeological. But Okay, you have my interest. We've gone from Kars being this character that I just, I was kind of meh over until that scene on the ship where he's brought in and he has that first inkling of the serpent. Well, and he thinks he's going insane. He thinks he's going insane. That was the first time I had a shred of empathy for him, though. I don't know why he, he wasn't incredibly likable to me at the beginning, but Cars redeemed himself by the end, and I, I want to say he were characters much easier hated. Yeah, I want to say he's brusque. He's no Kugel, right? I mean, he's just <laughs> brusque. There's there's a difference. You know, he oh, certainly. Oh man. Okay. Yeah, you've you've driven that one home. Thank you. <laughs> and, oh. and from and once once he gets onto the galley, I mean this this entire story. You want to talk about if it's a slow burn or a or, or a page turner? My God, you just you get to that point, and just hang on tight, because okay, so if you're anything one, like me, you're not going to put the book down. I will invite the listeners. Let us know. Did you think this was a drag? Did you think it was a a, a slow burn or page turner? Uh, you know what what were your thoughts on the pacing itself? Um, for for me, I have to say that the scenes with the swimmers, I it, in full disclosure, I listened to the book about three or four times before I read it <laughs> because that's what I had time for. And every time we'd get to that point where the swimmers, who are called halflings, among everybody else. Well, the, the halflings are the, are the three races. Uh, there were the swimmers, the sky the f- folk, and... And the serpent. They're all the halflings. Oh, the serpents were called that too. For some reason, I discredited or forgot that. Uh, but the swimmers were, to Kars's eye, humans mixed with maybe seal or dolphin. So they had that selkie quality. And... They were, there was a pair of them that had been captured by the slave ship that would be let down within metal harnesses so that they could swim out ahead to scope out the trenches and and the ocean floor to make sure there was nothing that could harm the ship as they were going. So they were basically the navigators from below. And something about that imagery just, oh, okay, that. I'm kind of sad we're not doing a traditional Sanctum Secorum show on it because I want to stat those so bad. <laughs> you still can. That's just fine. Um, and, well, and the thing is, if so I went and looked. The, uh, the June 1949 issue of Thrilling Wonder Tales is actually available on the Internet Archive. You can go, you can go online and you can read the actual issue 
which has illustrations. And one oh. of the illustrations is when he is tied to the rock and, and being put to the test. And you've got the, 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 the aged swimmers in the water and they look like, they kind of look like furry otters, right? They, they look like kind of shaggy otters. Uh, it, so it works really well, just, just the way they were captured in the book and then illustrated was really nice. Right. And, and Tony Hogarth is right. Yes. To, to, the, to the character's credit, he sees them as human. He doesn't treat them differently. Uh, so often, right? So often in, in fantasy, if it is a creature that is not human, it is it is you know, secondary it, it's second class everybody so, else viewed them as halflings and as not human uh, but I, did not i no i disagree there well, I, I should strongly say, disagree there because they were treated they were treated not only equally but the the elderly swimmers were the wise women of the sea kings right it's just that they they were called halflings because they were human like but they had not descended from the same line as humans. And then there were the, the sky folk, those with wings. And that were was, stunningly beautiful. It was said that when their wings were broken, they, they would die. They died inside. Well, their, their the, the initial statement, the initial so. statement was just when their, when, when their wings are broken, and said they die because, and they say that because the first time we meet one of the sky folk, mm -hmm. his wings are broken, but he is alive, but his spirit, right. his spirit is broken. And the, the next, right, like two paragraphs down, it was talking about, well, it was really more their spirit dies and, and Karst could see it because he was, the, the individual was so haggard and just had lost the will to live. Uh, the yes, other really yes, interesting, the other thing about the swimmers was that they were a little bit telepathic. And oh, they were just a little. They were, I mean, they were definitely telepathic. But not to Kars. They couldn't quite figure Kars out. But there, there was, was something a reason different. for that. Let's yes. talk about that. The reason they couldn't get into Kars's mind is because it was already occupied by Rihanna. <laughs> Rihanna, Rihanna had his arm out holding the stall door shut, going, occupied. And, and mm -hmm. so he was, he was sealing away his mind and he was the one that was protecting his mind. And the so cursed one. because Rhiannon gave technology and lifted up the serpents and that is how the, the serpents came to power and much, much like in any fantasy trope, yeah, give serpent people power. It it never ends well, and it it doesn't. It's not ended well here. And so we have we've got Rhiannon inside our main character fighting to redeem himself when no one believes him because he is Mars's version of Satan, right? I mean, people don't cross themselves because well, Mars, yeah. But but it is it is so. He, Rhiannon is so reviled that when they realize that Rhiannon is inside Matt, they're going to kill him rather than allow him to, to potentially yeah. destroy them all. That's a little Damien. I mean, it, on the surface, the mere concept of being punished and, and locked away that way and, and just entombed in response to teaching people knowledge you have to go a step further and realize that that knowledge had actually been stolen and given to the other people. And so, it, but it's still just a matter of sects hating on other so, people. Well, you know, <laughs> at least, so at least Rhiannon wasn't chained to a rock with buzzards eating his liver as it regrew daily. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Rhiannon is Prometheus. Rhiannon, you essentially brought fire to the serpents, but it did not end well. And, and so when his people left, they trapped him behind conscious. That's, that's what's so creepy about it. Entombed, mm -hmm. but conscious forever. So who put the sphere there? I mean, that, that had to be the, the, the queer, the queer. Yeah. That, that's a nice hard word to say. Uh, the, I'll go with queer. The, the quote unquote Lords of space and time are the ones who did this supposedly um, or at least put 
that sphere of whatever there, um, it almost looked like a sphere of annihilation to me, the way it read. Uh, but there was... Well, some inky know, black dissolvedness, but okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was kind of... It, it was weird black uh, distortion as as he was pushed into it. And there was that obvious will save that he had to make. But why was that there? Well, it was why, it was the it was, was the, it in it, his tomb because it was the distortion field that held him in stasis. It was it was part of what held him outside of space and time so he could be punished forever. And oh, that's right, because the the little thief at the beginning found the back way in. Right. Gotcha. Right. And and, and I was like, wait I'm a going minute. To, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to agree with uh, one of our folks in the in the chat. Yeah, the knife twist with the suicide of the broken wing, and yeah, that. Oh man. The Skyfolk. That was yeah. that. I I actually had to go back and I had to reread those two paragraphs like three times because. I really couldn't believe what I was reading. I'm like, hey, you know, the, the sky folk have come. They're they're talking, they're talking to this one. I'm like, oh, they're gonna carry him away. This is gonna be really nice. It's gonna be reunited. Nope. Not at all. No. Nope. Um, You're broken. You don't belong with us well, anymore. But, well, no, he, it, they did not treat him as an outcast, but he felt as an outcast. Yeah. And and yeah, so jumping into the ocean and then describing the way that he must have sunk like a bird being pulled down by its waterlogged wings. Oh. Well, and, and the animalism in, infused with these humans to make them halflings. Interestingly, in the Jakar of the future, they were cat-like people to Carson, or to Kars, because Kars was an Earthman. Right. Who came to Mars way late. Well, yeah. he came to Mars when he was like five, if you look at the story. He but was, it was late in, oh, in yes, Mars' in development. History. Yeah. I mean, a million years before, there was water. There, there was the water with the white phosphorescence, which eventually over the aeons, I can say eons though, because we're not in Jack Vance's world anymore, uh, <laughs> through the eons, it just became the white dusty sand that blew everywhere. So it's interesting that it lost its phosphorescence, but one of my favorite passages is describing the water being sluiced over Kars's back and it covered his body with a bright sheath. I, who, I don't know as I've ever seen anybody write like that. And it was, it was a really refreshing change. It Again. was, it was, mm -hmm. it was brilliantly written. So now that we've introduced folks to the to the book a little bit, let's let now let's talk about the character show. I'm digging into details on on just the, the linguistics and so and I mean we're so, done giving the overall. So so we had we had Matt Cars from Matt Carse, right? Who who it stepped through time. He is our he, he's our main protagonist. Uh, there was Bogaz Hoy of Valkis. Who, who is kind of, I, I don't remember the name of the character John Reese davies played in Indiana Jones, but that is literally how I see him, kind of, I mean, oh, Indiana, bad dates. I just sort of see him that way. And he's... I, I, I will mourn losing you. Could I have one of your trinkets to remember yeah, well, you by? <laughs> since you're going to die, can I have your stuff? Um, uh, Ewain yeah, of hey, Sark, <laughs> the, uh, the warrior princess. Yes. And, uh, and of course, there was... Rhiannon himself, the you know, the immortal being, and and honestly, I've got to add one more just because if they ever film this, Iron Heart must be or Iron Beard must be played by Brian Blessed. There'll be heavy talk along the feasting of the council tonight, but we have plenty of time to get decently drunk. <laughs> I'm just, oh my god! Right? I mean. Just, 
it's it, it just it, it would be so him um so who uh, who was your favorite character uh you know i'm i'm I have to say Elaine and mainly because of the first impression I got of her. Uh, it really resounded to me as uh, a little bit grania, if you will. You, you've got the slaves rowing the boat. Make sure they keep rowing. Oh, uh, you've lashed this guy. Oh, be sure to add some salt water. It has curative properties. Yeah, um, I would say she bit, was she's not bit. really a, a an or inviting was, character at the beginning. No, um, well, she's not really a, a inviting character at all. But she's 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 she's, she's portrayed very as, as very evil at the beginning. It, you know, evil, but she has her own reasons. E- evil is subjective, right? Um, Eating slaves is evil. There's no subjectivity there, um, but but she had. But, but I, for I, her I, overall, for her overall purposes, she had her reasons. The reason I appreciated that about this character, and that it wasn't just one of the other men in that world, was because you don't often see a woman in power like that who isn't. Uh, <clears throat> Petulant? Is that the right word for it? Yeah, she she's, she's she not a whiny mince. brat. No, she doesn't mean she's not a whiny brat. No, she yeah. is. She's a strong character, and I mean, as as we discover it, she's she's also no no wilting daisy either. I mean, exactly. he comes he comes at her with the sword of Rihanna to kill her, and she and parries. She parries and holds the blow at bay. She parries lightningly fast, so and she stands by him in battle. And yeah. I can, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can see that. I would say, I would say that uh, she never really becomes nice, but as her motives become more understandable, and that's the other thing about about the character, right? She has depth. She yes. is not just "I am evil queen," "I am evil princess." No, there is there's actual depth there. There's there's motives behind what she's doing. And as that gets revealed, it makes the character much more interesting because she she's kind of one dimensional at the beginning because she is I am evil queen. I am evil princess. Mwahaha. But that it's, really develops my ship. I run this place. These are my people. Right, and, and that would be just as one dimensional if it was a man. Yeah. That, that, that's a one dimensional character. It, she, they add a lot of depth through the story. Um but I would have to say my favorite character is, has got to be uh, Bogaz. Uh, you know, to the point where at the end, you know, victory has been declared. And he comes back and he is he he went running off, and he kind of reminds, in a way, he reminds me of the thief from Conan the Destroyer. Um, he has almost nothing to do with the final battle whatsoever, but then he runs off to the city and tells them of how important he was, and they make him their king, and he's talking about how great it is. He's always wanted to loot a royal treasury, but but it's 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 your treasury now. Oh, by the gods, it's so. Well, I'll have to have your real serious penalties against thieves. Uh, and it's just, he's, he's this delightful... That's right, foil. because he doesn't go back, does he? Well, no, he stays. Well, no, he is not. He's not the thief that. He's not the thief that went to the tomb. No, no. Um, he, it's it's not the, that he goes back. He he was always from there. I got the impression at the end that Cars uh, would be able to return to his time, and that Irwin was right, and Irwin goes with him. Because right. there's nothing left for her there. And I thought Bogaz stayed. Right. Well, I mean, you, well, yes, Bogaz does yeah. stay he, okay. because, because oh, he doesn't that, have that anywhere to go. That is his time. That's it's right. It's his time. Right. And and so this entire thing, he is, it, and I it want gets, to say the way, he's, the way he is written is really nice because with a character such as his, the way he's constantly kind of, well, you know, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take that from you. It would be very easy for him to just come off, 
you know, irritating or mealy, and and he doesn't. Instead, he continues to come off as as light because you know he's he's oh well, you know, I didn't mean anything by it, but you know, since you since you were going to die anyway, and well, oh, well, how did how did you how did you come by the sort of running? Oh well, because I carried it here and they made me leave it outside the door when I came in to see you. Why, why did you have it? Well, as your closest friend, I claimed it for you, of course. He was just so much fun, and he brings a note of brightness to a story that, in in other regards, could be very dark. Yeah, you know, with with the with the that, themes running true. through it. There are a few parts, yeah. Um, poor Skyfolk, uh, <laughs> but no, my my brain just made the connection of why it it seems like. Bogaz came with Kars through all of this because the ship is almost an allegorical leaving of your current setting, right? So they had the the city setting in. That's true. They went from city setting to ancient city setting to then to the ship with the sky, the the sea kings, and all of that. So yeah, that that's where my brain hiccuped. Just to backtrack and. And explain that one. Sorry, but <sighs> yeah. over overall, there was there was so much going on, and I've got to say, what what sticks with me the most is the closing of the book. That that final scene as he's returned to to quote unquote present day Mars, and he's looking over the desolation, and he can he can hear and smell the waves that were once there. He can see the green on the mountaintops as it's sort of overlaid in, in his vision. And the way, the way that it's, it's written is so evocative and it's so powerful. It's this entire redemption of a dead planet. And that, that really sticks with me. I think like when he first gets transported, and he's walking through the jungle and yet through the wastes at the same time. Mm-hmm. And there was n- there was no further explanation than that. And I I really dug that part. I, I was surprised at myself at how much I enjoyed this book. Yeah, because the- I don't like the sci-fi in my fantasy usually. Well, and and much like much like many of the stories of the period. When it when it comes time for the story to end, it wraps up pretty quickly. But it is not like an abrupt, almost mid sentence ending, like say Andre Norton. Uh, it actually has an ending because uh, I was yeah. getting towards the end. I'm like, wow, well, you know, there's not a whole lot of pages left. So a lot is going to happen really quick, and it did. And I didn't feel I didn't feel robbed because the pacing of the story built with it, right? It, it built this this furious climax so lots of things are happening but you've been you've been working to get there and so the flow of the story itself carries very well um yeah we've got 141 pages in this thin little oh not even a daw this one is ace um but it's it's very packed there there's not a whole lot of space lost to those sweeping descriptions that that you would expect from some pulps no no lee Lee brockett describes things but isn't isn't florid but also isn't so economic with her prose that it's just well that's a halfling it's it's a swimmer yeah well, no, but, it, but 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 what is that? You know, there are um, explanations given by other characters without it seeming like exposition. Um, it, although part of it did sound to me a little bit as they were rowing for endless hours, uh, Bogaz was giving Karst the rundown. Once he realized, no, you really are a foreigner. Um, it really felt like kind of throwback to Sherlock Holmes. I'll tell you all about it on the train there. Yeah. Right. Well, it, and it's we're not going to waste all this dialogue time standing here on the floor. I'm 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 from so far away that that everything is foreign to me. 
I don't know what game you're playing, but sure, I'll play along and treat you like you don't know this. Sure, I'll I'll treat you like you don't know why everyone's all upset about Rhiannon. Sure, whatever, let's do this. And it's just, almost a, I it's got you of, into these chains. Let me at least entertain you. While well, here. it's just, I, I think it's part of just sort of the uh, the long-suffering attitude of Magaz, right? He's just like, sure, okay, I'll humor you. You know, uh, we're in chains because I tried to, you know, help you sort of mm-hmm. by trying to rob you, but I was helping you while robbing you. All right, sure, whatever. I'll play along. Oh, oh, now we're now we're going to the city of the serpents. Oh, that's great. Thanks a lot. Uh, he's just he, what he, happened he's to not knowing your way around. He's yeah. just so he's so haplessly dragged along. Now, what about you, Jen? What what sticks out from you know, most? I mean, besides the swimmers. Um, and we'll open that up to uh, to, to I mean, uh, the, our viewers as well. What what scene really? <laughs> no, what scene really sticks with you? What what scene really sticks with you? The swimmers are are gonna stick with me for a while. I mean, I remember hearing about it at first and rushing in to tell you all about it, and and you just kind of gave me a bit of side eye oh uh, yeah. but i had i had I questions and now. you weren't answering them yes i understand now uh no the scene where uh they're they're first brought in and cars kills the serpent oh yeah followed by bogaz just taking both hands and thumping them down onto one of the slavers and killing him and killing him outright. Yeah. But, but it doesn't really state that that's what he was trying to do. He just, you know, clubbed him with, with the irons that he was still wearing. And later, Oh yeah. Um, I killed him. Big metal, big, heavy iron bracelets brought down was, to the back of someone's so head. Just kind of like, okay, I'll play along. Oh, I killed him. Oops. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, oh, and, and uh, Tony, Tony Hogarth brings up the destructions of the, of the serpents and that that climactic that scene, yeah. that that whole visual of that that whirlwind, that expanding whirlwind of destruction that is just sweeping and outward and, and pushing them you know, further and further towards that barrier. People was was a little complex for cars. Well, and the spirit in his mind. What? Uh, uh, what, I, I, no, he, he's not killing his people and it wasn't complex, oh, it was, complicated for Rhiannon at all Rhiannon, Rhiannon hated his children by the time by the time he was imprisoned and so Rhiannon that, that was Rhiannon's plan all along was to get there and kill them and that's that's what uh that was one of the points made in the chat earlier uh was Rhiannon's true motive uh deceitful or true it was ambiguous until late in the book yeah, well, it, not not for lack of trying. He's like, hey, so I'm Rhiannon. Here's what I like to do. Please don't, no, please don't kill my host. Please, please don't, please, please don't kill my host. I've got a plan. Will you just, and so I, and, and nobody will listen to him. So he finally was like, ah, fine. I'm going to sit here and sulk in the corner of this guy's mind and just, you know, I mean, yeah. nobody will listen to Rhiannon. And so when it when it all comes to light, it's like, yeah, you know, I I regretted what I had done, and the serpents knew it, right? That was sort of the snagging the blind. Yes, my children, I have come to see you, and they're they're mocking him because they know that Rhiannon had turned on them at the end, and even Rhiannon's people had known that that was kind of a kind of a twist. They imprisoned him knowing that he had turned against the serpents, but in their eyes, it was too little, too late. Yeah, that was there, that was an amazingly some, powerful scene, though. There were some flaws in the humanity there. Yeah, well, they weren't human. <laughs> don't don't be specious centric. Oh, Coles. <laughs> don't be specious centric. They weren't human. I can't be specious centric because there were halflings that weren't halflings. Uh, yeah. Well, right, because they 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 couldn't burn luck. Right. Um, that that was pretty uh, obvious. But there was there was just there were so many fantastic scenes uh, when he's when he's being put to the test and he's he's 
essentially bound to the rocks with the water lapping at his feet and and the swimmers are probing into his mind trying to trying to uh, try find if if Rhiannon is there and and Rhiannon is unable to completely conceal himself and that's kind of that's kind of important because when you get to the the end of the story right and the serpents are like aha we know you're false and he's like aha i was here all the time you just couldn't find me let's talk so there's there's that moment of really showing putting into perspective not how powerful Rhiannon is or how powerful the serpents were but how powerful those aged swimmers were how how powerful those those seers were that they were able to reach into his mind and and force a confrontation with Rhiannon yeah i'm going to stick with them as being my favorites uh there's a comment here that I haven't finished my con. I have finished my contracted amount of words. The end. I hate those endings. Uh, and on that note, I will say, I appreciate the fact that we didn't get the explanation of how Wayne dealt with being a million years in the future. It just. Right. We're, we didn't, we're we left, didn't we're left to know that it, it happened and that presumably Cars will help her through it the way she stood by him during her time. Well, and let's 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 talk about about you in at the end for just a second there. Let's let's scroll back like maybe 20 minutes in her life when you know, her people and the sea kings are are finally on the verge of peace. And she is you know, she is now the ruler of her people because her father was vaporized. And, and it's, Awkward. we we will not be at peace with a nation run by her. And she's like, yeah, that's fine. I don't need this. You know, it, her entire One more motive. reason for me to like her. Yeah. Her entire motive was not, was not power. That's that she, she didn't, she didn't shirk it. She didn't shy away from power, but it was not her driving need. She didn't have this overriding ego that made her have to be at the forefront of everything. It, it kind of goes with the the character had depth. The character had layers that were revealed as we went along. She did what she had to do. Mm-hmm. And she hated the serpents. So it was all good. She hated the serpents. She hated her father. Both died. It was all good. It was win-win. <laughs> so happy kind of and the story um i don't know looking at the clock we should probably move toward the end of our show bob all right well let's let's, now we uh, have a poll now we yes jen now we have a poll (laughs) i knew it was in there somewhere we we focused on it so much uh, prior to the show so let's let's talk about who we should read for next month. So we we have uh, we have now run through the women of Appendix M, all three of them. Sad, sad. But we want to we want to kind of continue because there's a lot of a lot of women authors that had some great influence. There were some pioneering authors for the fantasy and the sci-fi fields, and. Learning about them makes me want to read their works. Uh, I'll be perfectly blunt. Yes, Appendix N is out there and it has a lot to offer. And it has nothing to do with the fact that it's primarily male driven. It's the fact that I like to explore new authors and and new things. So the four we have for you are all females. (laughs) Well, that kind of goes with with our yes. continuing trend. Uh, do you want to, do you want to start out with our first one? Um, you know, Gertrude Barrows Bennett has appealed to me for months now, finding out that she only wrote for uh, between three to five years of her life. And that was to support her family after her husband died. She had a newborn baby and her mother was in hospice with her essentially. And then she stopped writing and mysteriously disappeared. They think she died like 30 years later, maybe. 
Um, well, so no, they, they thought that, she died 30 years later. She died 40 years later. She just stopped talking to everybody. Coupled with the fact that she is credited with being the creator of dark fantasy. That, yes, I, I would love to read Citadel of Fear. Citadel of Fear 1919, the, considered one of the first dark fantasy stories. So uh, for our Twitch viewers, there's a little uh, down arrow that you'll have to click on at the top of the chat window, and you can start filling out a poll. And we're even going to let you cheat and, and you know, like use, yeah. use channel points and bits to vote early and often. Um, <laughs> Load your votes, yeah. Our um, next, okay, so our I, next. I talked too long about that one. I'm sorry. Our next, our next author is Zena Henderson, who is best known for her stories of the people, and so we're looking at Pilgrimage, the book of the people, which was the first in this of those stories, which is aliens that have come to Earth and are are living in kind of a small rural community not amongst us so much as beside us. And there's, there's certainly with her work, there's certainly uh, some, some kind of Bradbury style storytelling there. Really, really great stuff. We don't have, we have about 20 seconds before the rest of the poll runs out. So real quick, we've got CL Moore with Jarell of Joyry. The first, right? yep. The first woman sword and sorcery lead character. And she, her works were published as early as 1930, so pre most of Appendix N here. Mm-hmm. And the last one is really fun. That's Lady Margaret Cavendish. She's credited with writing the first fantasy novel ever back in 1666, The Blazing World. And if I recall, um, oh, I, I'm forgetting the descriptor for it. But it's essentially a, a woman brought into that time and made to be an empress and having to deal with all of that. Uh, so I'm I'm seeing a bit of a, a weighted vote here. I oh I could use points to weigh that too. Hmm. Bob, you get to vote too. Yeah, I know because um, I really want to read uh, Jarell of Drury. Uh, CL Moore, by the way. Um, was for the longest time believed to be Merritt. Oh, as an Abraham Merritt? Yes. People oh, thought so that, that C.L. Moore was a pen name of Abraham Merritt. But of well, course, she was had not. plenty of pen names, but so did her husband, which is really interesting. He has like a page worth of pen names. But we are going to be reading Citadel of Yay! Fear. I mean, you know, I, I can't, I, I, I uh, it, it's, okay. There was not a bad choice on there, right? So, yeah, the well. of fear looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, um, I'm going to copy a link into the chat here, uh, so that if anybody wants to get it and read it along with us, there's an Amazon link because that's the closest I could do. But I, you could probably find it um, on the Internet Wayback machine. Uh, um, so the Wayback machine fear- had audio for that. Yes, there's there's audio for it, um, Which and I will be tapping into as well. But I would say use the link because Citadel of Fear was not released under the name Gertrude Barrows Bennett. It was released under the name Francis Stevens. Most so not all of her work was released under Francis right, Stevens so, because she couldn't be a woman in the field. And and hey, we're not we're not we're not even dropping an affiliate link here. We're just dropping an Amazon link. So. You know. <laughs> Excellent point. And we're not self. get affiliate links next time. <laughs> Every bit helps, right? No, I, I kid, I kid. This is sheerly for the love of the books, and it gives okay, it gives Jen an excuse to read something and talk about it. And then we get to have you guys pick our, our next thing, and it's interactive. And I, I really dig that. Um the podcast format has its pluses as well, but this fits for for the moment. It, it's this is this I well like this it. is this is a different show. This is a different show. It hits different notes. And, That's uh, exactly right. Um, I mean, I'm not sitting here talking about how many things I want to stat up, or I mean, I did one, but you you really could 
pick up this book and run any game set and, here. And, and Dennis, I'm with you. We'll get your roll of jewelry next time. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll cycle out some of our choices because I think we had uh, Cavendish in last time. We did. Cavendish is the only one that stayed last time. Last time we had Andre Norton's Witch World. Okay. We had um, Dolphins of Altair. Oh, by, by Margaret St. Clair. By Margaret St. Clair. And we had um, A Modern Prometheus, a.k.a. Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Ah, gotcha. And we, we cycled okay. three of those up, but we, kept, but, we, right. but we kept Lady Cavendish because 1666. Right. I'll <laughs> just pick the thing up and read it on my own in my copious spare time, right? <laughs> right spare time well <laughs> and i can tell you about it later because you know maybe that maybe that'll be the other sanctum show who knows so we'll thanks everyone there. for uh for joining us tonight it was nice to see some uh, some familiar faces in the chat and some new ones as well a lot of fun yes we we love and miss you all and hope to see some of you at GaryCon. And those whom we don't, we'll hopefully we'll hopefully see you Tuesday, April nineteenth at nine p.m. for our next episode. Yes, and you have a month of advance warning to read the story with us. I'm sure it won't be four hundred pages long. Please don't be four hundred pages long. I've got a lot to I've got a lot to do before April fifteenth. <laughs> <laughs> although well, to be it's on the 19th although to, although to be fair sort of Rihanna took me an hour and a half so <sighs> yeah this is what I have to live with on that note folks uh, on um, that note yes have a wonderful night and Bob it's your line be inspired we'll see you later folks have a good night take care Sanctum Sequorum Reading Room has been a production of Sanctum Media. <laughs>